You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Let me add my welcome to, to Ralph's. My name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at City Church. And it's my privilege to take us through the next part of our series in Mark's Gospel. So we're going to be starting off with a Bible reading. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 25. If you need a Bible, I'm sure one of the welcome team or staff team will be able to get one for you. Just put your hands in your air and we will do that. Um, But Mark chapter 1, sorry, Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, Some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? And they answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread their branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, He found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, they went along. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says this to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes, Though what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, 
and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Why don't we pray before we dive in? Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon laying in front of you the details of our week, our month, our year and even our lives. Recognising that there is so much wrong. There is so much that we wish had happened that hasn't, so much that we wished hadn't has happened that has occurred. And we come before you humbly asking with the reality of our lives before us, that you would intervene, that you would bring truth to our hearts wherever we might be this afternoon. And we pray that you would speak to each one of us individually. Father, we recognise that our temptation will be to ignore what you say and to continue on the trajectory that we came in with. But we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would intervene strongly into the details of our lives right now. Amen. Well, let me begin by telling you about my father-in-law, John. If anyone was a bit like Indiana Jones, it was him. My father-in-law, John, um, is the type of guy who's lived a very remarkable life. Uh, He has, at times, explored the inner chambers of the Egyptian pyramids. He has explored through the jungles the Mayan temples and he's explored the mysteries of some of the world's scariest volcanoes. And out of all of those things, the remarkable gift that he brought me back was this. You can't see it, but there might be a picture on the screen of something similar. He gave me a fossil. That's what this is. Fossil. You see, over millions of years, layers upon layers of sand has built up on this one poor creature until it became rock. Isn't that incredible? That which was once as soft as a shrimp has become only breakable by the force of a hammer. Now, the reason that I want to share that with you this afternoon is to tell you something obvious but very significant and it's this over time things radically change over time things radically change you see very few things that really matter change overnight a friendship cools one micro moment at a time over time a marriage hardens over many micro-tiny steps. But what do you do when you wake up and realise that your faith, your relationship with God has hardened to rock? Where once perhaps your faith was described as living and vibrant. And yet now you realise, if you're honest, it's become calcified, hardened. It's become fixed and stuck. The teachings of the Christian life that for you 
used to be an easy yoke, a feather like joy compared with the expectations and comparisons that this world offers. What do you do when that has now become burdensome? There's a heavy rock on your back. I guess the question is for all of us this afternoon, is when we have become so distant and walled off from any sense of the awe of God, who or what can break through? Well, this is a a fascinating passage for us to look at this afternoon very briefly, and I've got two points, and the first one's this, the temple, the temple. See, the heart of the passage that I've just read is the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus has just declared himself effectively king by riding in on a donkey, and he visits this location at the very heart of the city in Israel. In fact, he he visits the Jerusalem temple twice in our passage, once in verse 11 and another in verse 18. And this location is so significant to understanding this passage, I'm just going to take a few moments to describe it, to unpack its significance. Because if you want to know the significance of the temple, you want to go back to somewhere like 1 Kings chapter 6, where God instructs Solomon, the king at the time, to create this immense building in the very heart of Jerusalem. And the temple was designed to be what we might describe as a lighthouse to the world, where people of all walks of life, all nations, could draw close to God in one geographical place. And so alongside the temple, the main central structure, they built this large courtyard structure all around it. And that large courtyard that went right around the temple, it was part of the temple complex, was called the outer court, or it's sometimes called the court of the Gentiles. If you would imagine with me, it's paved in polished marble, so it would have been beautiful, and it's surrounded by by colonnades, pillars all the way around. It it was absolutely massive, uh, and it was the size, um, well, it was huge, Think of Old Trafford, it was 12 times as big. It's massive. Now, although non-Jews were not allowed into the inner courtyards of the temple, this outer courtyard, this courtyard of the Gentiles, unlike any other temple in the ancient world, was its largest space. And it was devoted to those from outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. The very architecture of this ginormous courtyard of the Gentiles was designed to to be a signpost to the world, to the outsider, to the the refugee or, or the slave, to those who really did not belong. It was meant to tell them, there is a place for you here so that you can draw closer to your creator. Isn't that wonderful? 
Yet over time, decisions, micro-decisions, small decisions, like a, a billion small grains of sand falling, these decisions were made on what was permitted to go on in this courtyard. You see, the priests, over many years had made many micro-decisions. So, for example, one of the decisions was they allowed money changers to set up stalls in this outer courtyard. For at the temple, only the Tyrian shekel was allowed to be given as an offering or gift to the temple because it was a coin that had no images. And therefore, if you wanted to give money at the temple, you had to get it changed. Number two, priests over time allowed the outer court to become the national bank. If you wanted money for your home or a small business loan, that is exactly where you would go. There was permission given to sell animals. Uh, the historian Josephus estimates that over 255,600 lambs would have been brought into this area over the time of Passover to be bought sold and therefore sacrificed at the temple for Passover. It would have been noisy, it would have been chaotic, it would have been an absolute mess. And despite the ruling, there was a rule that you were not allowed simply to pass through this courtyard as a shortcut to going to somewhere else to do some other business well, it was common practice for the temple courtyard to be an extension of the Jerusalem inner ring road. And so when Jesus arrives at the temple, look at, with me at verse 11. He just arrives at the temple. And note that it says, he looked around at everything. This welcome mat to the world it designed in polished marble to declare, come you who are weary and burdened and find rest in your God, had now become as chaotic and as smelly and as horrendous as the first morning after the end of the Glastonbury Festival. You think a wasteland of filth and rubbish all under the nose of the great pyramid stage is bad. It is nothing compared to the stench and mess and chaos under the nose of the very holy of holies at the centre of the temple. And so at the time that Jesus arrives at the temple, the welcome mat to the world has now become as warm and as accepting as saying, beware of the dog. And the great tragedy of all this, nobody cared. Nobody cared. But let's not be too judgmental. After all, is it not we who know that our hearts are also easily hardened to God? Because we know that the biggest problem is not merely our sin, that which is living in a way that God has not asked us to live. The big problem is we are unmotivated, just as they were, to do anything about it. 
You see, the people in Jerusalem at the time, the authorities, they were like a married couple sleepwalking in divorce, but not prepared to have a conversation about it. But Jesus in verses 15 to 17 sees what it really is. Look with me at verses 15 to 17. And as out of place as a scream in a library or laughter at a funeral, Jesus publicly calls out the temple for the danger for what it is. In fact, what we see in this passage is Jesus responds with a level of fury of what would we say, physical violence, that if we didn't know it, we would probably say, no, this couldn't possibly be our Jesus from the Bible. And yet here it is. It's almost as if Jesus smashes out of any box that we have cared to put in him as if we'd wrap the Hulk in cling film. And yet this public spectacle of what Jesus does in our passage seems a million miles away, doesn't it? Of Jesus who only last week was welcoming little children. Before you look away, before you look away at Jesus' very embarrassing behaviour here, there's a couple of things I want you to note. I want you to note that the passage says that he drives out those who were selling. Literally, physically, he's getting in the faces of the market traders until they run out. Note the physical effort that would have been required to literally upturn tables that were stacked high with stacks of money. Note that the focus is upon those who who sold pigeons. Now, the the focus here is these animals were the bargain basement of animal sacrifice for those who couldn't afford a more impressive piece of cattle to sacrifice at the temple. In other words, we're not to take away here that there were more feathers flying than an explosion at a pillow factory. No, no, we're meant to see that Jesus is going after the economic gatekeepers who decided which of the poorest in society were allowed access to God. And I want you to note that Jesus' justification for the equivalent outrage of bursting into the Bank of England and throwing laptops on the floor whilst crying out at the top of your voice, there is a robbery going on, is as Jesus says, they've turned this house of prayer into a den of robbers. That's his justification. Now look, What does he mean by that? No doubt some malpractice went on in this great marketplace in Jerusalem. In any street market, you've got legitimate bargains, but you've also got the knocked-off Louis Vuitton handbags. But that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. The theft that Jesus is talking about is emptying God of his glory as stealthily as an accountant can steal from a pension pot. The robbery that Jesus is sounding the alarm over is the gradual turning of this court of the Gentiles into a place of distraction and business and entertainment and life admin. Because when they did that, they started communicating to the whole of the world that God has lost his sense of awe 
and lost his sense of wonder and rather God has become dull and downgraded, crowded out by just the normal busyness of life. And Jesus says that is absolutely unacceptable. Note the things that have stolen the attention of the people and snatched away their awe of the majesty of God in their hearts. They are very normal things. Do you see that? They are the things that you would find on any of our to-do lists. They are good things, dare I say it. And yet they are things that over time, grain of sand by grain of sand, have gradually become the priority over and above relishing the person and the wonder of God. Do you see the crime? Do you see the crime? You see, God was always there. He hadn't gone anywhere, just as the temple was still standing there. But the awe, the specialness of who God is, the heart worship was gone. And of course, this isn't just a historic problem way back in the day. Mark, who wrote this account of Jesus' life, has placed this description here so that the readers, that is you and I, might be alerted to the fact that whilst we sit here politely in church, that same robbery is going on in our own hearts. Look, there is no temple now. Because by faith, we can approach God whenever we wish. Just as the temple courts were open 365 days a year, 24-7, the courtyard access for us is always open. We can approach God whenever we want, but it's not in a physical place anymore. It's, it's enjoyed with our time and our attention. the time and attention that we give to marvelling at the wonder of who God is. So when I put it like that, how are you doing? You see, is your heart and mind and attention not more cluttered than the outer court as described here in Jerusalem? Look, let me put it like this. When was the last time that you or I trembled before the awe and wonder of God more than our emotions were ever affected by our entertainment? When was the last time that my imagination or your imagination was captured more by the wonder of God than questions over our to-do list or our career progression or our relationship status? Let me ask you this, true or false, are you not too busy to pray? And of course, the worst thing of all, the worst thing of all, is are your habits and mine habits of a functional atheist set hard in your life like hardened concrete? Is that not the tragedy? Can you see the crime? Can you see why Jesus was absolutely furious? Well, come with me to our second and final point, the tree. I wonder if you, I wonder if you were thinking to yourself, I wonder why people let it happen. Why didn't someone stop Jesus when he was going through this moment of craziness? 
Well, it's because they recognised that Jesus was teaching them something. You see, they recognised that what was happening in the temple courtyard was a sign that prophet Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, famously said 400 years before our passage, he says this, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then Ezekiel in chapter 37 speaks of the glory of God arriving at the temple. And then Zechariah 9 uh, verse 8 says of God returning to his temple to keep guard against those who would abuse it. This was all a prophesied sign that Jesus would come to do this. And just to make sure that we don't miss the teaching point that he's making, that's why Jesus in verses 12 and 14 and verses 20 and 21 describes how Jesus destroys a fig tree that looked healthy but was actually fruitless. Because he's making the point that Jesus is both the king of creation who reveals fakes and hypocrites, And Jesus is also the God of the temple who reveals fake worshippers and hypocritical followers who are just going through the motions but have no genuine adoration for God at all. But I guess aren't we left, as we look at this passage, feeling that isn't Jesus a bit frightening? Isn't this Jesus a bit terrifying? If I describe to you that a number of months ago, as a household, was sleeping quietly, silently, in the middle of the night, at the darkest moment of that evening, a group of friends came to a house in a quiet suburb. A number of them had axes and they smashed the door, splintering the lock, and so the door flew open. They went straight to the bedrooms of the children and they literally, in turn, dragged the children out of beds with a degree of roughness that meant some of those children may well have had bruising on their arms. And they picked them up roughly and dragged them out of the house. Wouldn't you be horrified? But would it change your perception of that instant if you knew that the house was on fire and that group of friends were the fire service? Well, of course, it would change everything, wouldn't it? Suddenly, it makes perfect sense. Let me put it like this. Jesus will not permit those who have once tasted the wonder of God to spiritually suffocate in the smoke of everyday distractions. In love, will he not turn over the tables of your life plans if it wakes you up to him? Will he not remove the benches of what makes you happy if it restores your attention to what truly matters? In love, will he not interrupt your polite Christian walk if it has merely become a shortcut to a peaceful life through a bland routine? 
Only the interruption, the size of a hammer blow, could break through the rock of our hearts. And that is exactly why this passage is so brutal, disorientating, unexpected, and painful to watch. But it is exactly the medicine that we need to wake us up. You see, the results of this passage is the genuine believer will hear this as teaching and respond, and yet the fake believer will dismiss it and they will wither. We know, don't we, that we are prepared to fight for those that we love. And so let me say this, if your friends have given up on you, or for some of you here, if your parents have given up on you, this passage teaches that Jesus will never, ever stop fighting for you. Isn't that ice cream to the soul? Isn't that good to hear? Those of you who feel that you have long, long drifted in your faith and your spiritual desert has lasted weeks or months or even years, isn't it good to know that Jesus will not let you continue drifting? He will wake you up by any means because he loves you. But this passage is a stark warning to any institution or church that bears the name of the God of the Bible, but has lost its sense of the wonder and majesty of God and says to the outsider in the world, beware of the dog. Any institution that has done that, this passage says, beware. But you know the deepest level of love, the deepest level of love that furiously fights furiously fights for those they love is not ultimately seen in a show of physical strength. It is ultimately seen in the courage to lay down your life for those you care about most. You see, in this passage, we are reminded that we have a king who will both drag us by any means necessary away from sleepwalking off a spiritual cliff. But we also have a king who will allow himself to be dragged out of his father's house, accused of himself of being a robber of God's glory and nailed to a tree, a wooden cross, where he who was the most fruitful person who ever lived would suffocate and wither and die also that we could have two things number one so that we could have a restored relationship with God we could be forgiven and have full access to God whenever we like without the need of a temple and better than the outer courts where we could come right up to the father through faith and speak to him of anything that's on our hearts and secondly Jesus' death means even when we don't come, don't come, and we fill our minds with distractions and entertainments and busyness of life that strip away his glory. And this passage really shows how seriously Jesus takes that, doesn't it? For the genuine believer, this passage reminds us that he will never let us go And he will never stop pursuing us to bring us back. 
There is no obstacle the Lord Jesus wouldn't crash right through in order to restore our joy and our sense of awe in him. So let me put it like this. If the tables of normality, of security, have been turned over in your life, then don't panic. Don't read the pain that you're going through right now as God's hatred towards you. No, the heat of what you're experiencing is the presence of his love as he seeks to restore you. That's great news, but hard news for those of us who are struggling. But look with me at verses 24 and 25. This is where the passage finishes. Finishes on the Mount of Olives. And it finishes where Jesus is in a place where he can see both the temple in the distance and Golgotha, the place where he will die for his friends. And of course, he says to them, draw close to the Father and ask anything that you wish. That's how he finishes this passage, isn't it? And it makes perfect sense after everything that's happened in the temple, isn't it? Jesus is saying to his friends, look, draw close to God. For everything that I am about to do makes that way freely open to you. Jesus, almost you can imagine it with a gleam in his eye, says to his friends, come close to God and now ask for anything, literally anything at all. So my question for you this afternoon is if you believe that is true, what will you ask for? What will you ask for? Now you can just come. Before you answer that, there's just a tiny note in verse 25 before you answer. Just a tiny note in verse 25. And it's this. For those of us who have heard the warning of this passage who have felt the gift of what God has done for us, and we felt the guilt of our own personal neglect. For those of us who realise how much our own self-obsession has been an obstacle to seeing and enjoying the beauty and the reverence and the awe of our Creator, for those of us who this afternoon's hearts have swelled with love and wonder for God, as the penny has dropped of how our God loves us so much, he will never cease to fight, stop fighting for us. For us, and you know who I'm talking to this afternoon, for us, let me ask you this, will we approach God with a swagger and ask for a sports car? Will we? We can but my guess is we won't. And if we're not going to ask for that, what will you say to your God? What will you say? Let's just take a moment of silence and in our own hearts speak.
Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that we have so quickly exchanged your glory. The opportunity to reverently invest time enjoying you and celebrating you in our own devotions, in our own prayer life. We have exchanged that opportunity for the busyness of life and we are withered and poorer for it. Father, we admit to you our own hypocrisy, the fact that it's so easy for us to go through the motions where we know deep down our own reverence and delight in you has so quickly and for such a length of time become cold. And so I ask that you would restore us in seeing Jesus' fight for us. I pray we would recognise that knowing and enjoying you is more important than anything else. And where we are guilty of turning aside from who you are, I pray that we would repent. And I pray that now, having seen your wonder, your love, your courage for us, that we would commit ourselves to enjoying, to celebrate, to devote our time again to experiencing, relishing and celebrating the awe and glory of our wondrous God. Amen.